Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope y'all are having an amazing, fantabulous day, afternoon, evening, or night. However and whenever it is you are tuning in, thank you again to everyone who has been supporting all the great stuff that we're doing. Thanks to all the people subscribing to our YouTube. We had a couple big live streams over the weekend. To the people following on Instagram, Comical Sports Memes, Take It Easy Podcast. To the people who are buying merch, thank you for that. The link to all that stuff is in the description to today's episode, and we're back at it for another fantabulous Monday as we move into the full second round of the NBA playoffs. We'll get to Luka and the Clippers and Game 7 and all that stuff later on, as well as the unofficial message coming to you from the mayor of Warriors South. That's me. After the Atlanta Hawks win Game 1 in what was resounding fashion, but then went into the, oh my gosh, is Atlanta going to really choke this again? three-point lead with a minute to go but ultimately the Hawks prevail and you know what a win is a win and the Atlanta Hawks did probably the most unthinkable thing of any of these playoff series more unthinkable than the Dallas Mavericks going seven games with the Clippers and barring a Luka injury probably should have won the series the Hawks won game one against the 76ers so we'll get to that in a little bit but we begin today's podcast with Julio Jones who is Wow, that is not a word. Wow, I am struggling right now to get that out. Maybe I should try a different word. Oh my God, that was just a terrible way to kick off the podcast. Wow, I'm I'm I am legitimately shook. I might need to to pause and re-edit this one. All right, so now that I have come to my own shame uh, and basked in my own sadness for about a minute or so uh, and wiped the tears away from my eyes, Julio Jones got traded to the Tennessee Titans. And it was a deal that I had been saying for the past couple days because for those who had been following the story, Julio Jones was going to be traded after June 1st the whole way. It was part of the, the redealing of the contract for the Atlanta Falcons, the fact that they were motivated to move Julio Jones, but also motivated to keep Matt Ryan, which was a little counterintuitive, but also understandable in the retooling of the team. Arthur Smith wants to run the tool tight end, tool, dual tight end sets. Wow, I am I am really struggling right now. Dual tight end sets and wanted to uh, move on from Julio Jones, clear the salary cap space, et cetera, et cetera. So the Atlanta Falcons made a salary de- deciding move 
a salary-driven trade to move Julio Jones to the Tennessee Titans. They got a second-round pick and a fourth-round pick while sending Julio Jones and a sixth-round pick. So essentially, they got a second-round pick and then a pick swap on day three draft picks. But the Tennessee Titans were one of those eight teams on the magical list that the Atlanta Falcons were trying to negotiate with. And what is the magical list, you may be asking? Great question. The magical list is the Tennessee Titans being one of the eight teams in the NFL that could take on Julio Jones's contract in its entirety without having to restructure or the Atlanta Falcons taking on some of the money in a restructured deal. The Tennessee Titans will pay $15 million to Julio Jones this year, $14 million the year after, and $15 million the year after that. It's a weird way that the contract was structured, but as far as I am aware, that is the way that that one is set up. It's a weird like up, down, up again uh, for Julio Jones based on weird incentives in his contract. So the Titans took on the entire contract as part of the deal, which was a question of whether or not that the Falcons would be willing to take less in exchange for a team willing to take on Julio's entire contract. And the Titans were that team whom I couldn't find the post or the story or whatever it was, but we talked before about Julio Jones ending up on the Tennessee Titans back when the rumors were first flying around that the 49ers were in the Rams were interested and the Packers had touched base and Baltimore dropped out of the running and The Titans were the team that was pretty consistently at the top of that list. And ultimately, the Titans end up with Julio Jones. Now, the interesting thing for the Titans is that they have a lot of offense to replace from last year. The easy part for them is that their offense runs through the running game. Their offense starts and ends with the running game and Derrick Henry. But Ryan Tannehill was the eighth leading passer in the NFL last year, and they threw for close to 4,000 yards, and they have to replicate about 1,700 of those passing yards with the core of the team that they have. Jonu Smith, who is their number one tight end, he left in free agency to join the New England Patriots. And Corey Davis, who had a really, really quiet 1,000-yard season last year for the Tennessee Titans, he was one of like 15 receivers that had 1,000 yards, Corey Davis left in free agency to join the New York Jets. And the way that the Tennessee Titans retooled their roster was with Anthony Ferkser, who was already on the team as a tight end, and signing Josh Reynolds, from the Los Angeles Rams. And yes, Josh Reynolds in the right offense can replicate 700 yards that they lost from Jonu Smith. But ultimately, they were looking around at the return of Adam Humphreys and an increased role for A.J. Brown um, and maybe one of these tight ends deep down the depth chart to replicate their offensive production. And one of the things I'd been talking about going back to last March, like last February and March with the Titans, after... I nailed, and I don't want to brag too far down the road, but I nailed the fact that I said in 2019, if the Titans took Marcus Mariota out and put in Ryan Tannehill, they would make the playoffs after starting two and four. They did make the playoffs. They won two playoff games and lost in the AFC championship game to the Chiefs. And at that time, going into the next season, I had said, this is the byproduct of having to re-sign everybody, is that the Titans had... Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry in the 2019 AFC Championship run for around $6 million 
between the two. Tannehill's contract was loaded with incentives, but he only made about $1.5 to $2.5 million, and Derrick Henry was making $3 million on the back end of his rookie contract. And he was a second-round pick, so it wasn't like it was a, a, high, a heavy front-loaded contract like the top draft picks get. Like Todd Gurley was making a lot of money on his rookie deal. Derrick Henry was the 41st pick in the draft. So the Tennessee Titans went from paying $6 million for their battery, a.k.a. their quarterback and running back, to paying about $45 million. And this is one of the byproducts of having players age out and why windows shorten in the NFL is because you have to be very strategic about who you end up paying. And lo and behold, the Tennessee Titans, who did, by the way, won 11 games last year, lost in the wild card, but won 11 games barely with Derrick Henry rushing for 2,000 yards. It took a 2,000-yard performance from Derrick Henry to get them to barely 10 wins because they won their 11th game off of Ricochet off the goalpost and went in. So to win 10 games, it took that 2,000-yard performance from Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill being a top 10 passer in the NFL and having 2,000-yard receivers on their team, being Corey Davis and A.J. Brown. And this offseason was where the bludgeoning began for the Tennessee Titans. They lost Adoree Jackson. They lost Malcolm Butler. Um, they lost Johnny Smith. They lost Jack Conklin the offseason before. And they lost Corey Davis in free agency. They lost Jadavian Clowney, but they also signed Bud Dupree as an edge rusher who's better than Jadavian Clowney, at least at getting to the quarterback. So they compromised by signing a big edge rusher. And the Titans bring in Julio Jones with the remainder of their salary cap. They're pushing up right against it as they head into training camp with that bonus spot available, but not anyone to give it to. And yes, defensively, there were a lot of jokes being made across the internet about how defensively they need help because, you know, Christian Fulton can only do so much. And they're asking a big portion from him. And they're looking for big productions from Jeffrey Simmons, who's coming up on a contract. And, um, what's the Harold Landry, the third, who's a preseason hall of famer. Maybe we'll get to do preseason hall of fame this year, since there's going to be preseason games again. We did that back in 2019 and 2018. And we, we might be able to do that again here if we have a preseason, but Harold Landry was a preseason hall of famer. And so Harold, Harold Landry and Jeffrey Simmons are guys that they're really counting on to take big leaps forward. And, the Titans defense might need some help, but what they did with the Julio Jones acquisition is basically saying, we know that this is a maximizing window of right now, and we can get Julio Jones at a reduced price by using salary cap space, which is a huge luxury to have in this NFL where the salary cap went down for the first time in 11 years. Having salary cap space was a huge beneficiary to the Titans, and they used it perfectly in this scenario, because they got Julio Jones essentially for a late second round pick, which is exactly what the New England Patriots paid for nine games of Mohamed Sanu just two seasons ago. Now, was the Patriots trade for Mohamed Sanu one of the worst trades of the last five years? Yes, it was. But the fact that they only gave up a second rounder and a pick swap in the third day to net Julio Jones is a huge victory for the Tennessee Titans. For the Falcons, 
pick is a pick. They were going to get one pick for Julio Jones anyways. The fact that it's a second rounder versus a first and they get to clear the cap space, that's okay with me because the three parts of a rebuild, they technically accomplish two parts of the rebuild is get as many picks as possible. They technically netted one, but they also move up on another one to increase that value a little bit of a fourth rounder. For a rebuilding team, fourth round picks can be uh, rather valuable assets, uh, uh, potentially. There's no guarantee on any of these things. It's more of the process that you're going through to get a higher draft pick yourself. But they accumulate as many draft picks as possible. That's one of the three steps of a rebuild. The second one is to bludgeon the, the salary cap, accumulate as much cap space as possible so that when your winning window opens, you can sign a bunch of free agents to complement the young core that you created with draft picks. And three is to figure out your quarterback situation. So they've got time to figure out three. But the Julio Jones trade technically accomplishes one of two. Now the part that gets strange is with Matt Ryan, and that's a conversation for another day that we'll probably have with either Blake Jude or Walter Mitchell. And we've had this conversation in an array of different ways. I'm interested to see what Walter has to think about it because he's the guy who thinks Matt Ryan will go for 5,000 yards next season. But... The Falcons overall, it's a move that the the fact that they were able to get all the salary cap space cleared is a step towards a rebuild. It's not quite the move I would have made. I felt the first round pick might have been more valuable, but that second round pick could work out really well for the Falcons. They just need picks at this point to help with the rebuild and Julio Jones not being on the roster gets them closer to a top draft pick next year. Anyways, that's the point of it for the Falcons and I I love the idea that Arthur Smith would now go back to being the Titans offensive coordinator after giving them Julio Jones. I kind of like that idea, but the Titans used cap space to perfection in the way that they negotiated this deal with Julio Jones. They used their available cap space to perfection. And it's going to I don't know exactly what Julio Jones changes in the Falcons offense, whether or not they can replicate a top 10 passing offense year over year, because all Julio Jones is really doing is filling in the Corey Davis role. And for saying like, oh my gosh, it's Julio Jones versus Corey Davis. Well, Julio Jones across the last few seasons, and understandably Julio Jones has not been 100% healthy, but obviously Julio Jones that went for 1,800 yards in a season is not the Julio Jones that we're getting anymore. Julio Jones is actually two years older right now than Matthew Stafford was when he uh, walked away from football uh, at 30 with the Detroit Lions. And so Julio Jones is in nine games last season. He played nine games and had 771 yards of offense, receiving yards. And obviously he's not a red zone threat, but that's not a problem. You can red zone, uh, red zone threats are more a byproduct of offense. But Julio Jones, 771 yards. So if Julio Jones played a full, let's say 16 game season, just to prorate what we're talking about here, that would put Julio Jones at let's see 771 divided by nine is about doing quick math in my head here uh 77 is oh 80 uh 85 so 85 times 16 would be about 
1,400 yards. So 1,400 yards for Julio Jones had he played the full season, which is on pace for what Julio Jones we kind of expect from him. You know, 1,600 yards in 2014, 1,900 yards in 2015, 1,400 yards in 2016, and he only played 14 games, 1,400 yards in 17, 1,700 yards in 2018 in a full season, 1,400 in 2019. He would have been on pace for another 1,400 last year. So if you're replicating that production, the Falcons get better. I'm sorry, the Titans get better, but also note that the Titans, in terms of like what they're going to be next year, they're trying to replace about 1,700 yards of offense, and they've got about 1,400 of that back with Julio Jones. So maybe they'll have a more prolific offense, and the math changes with Tannehill, who, by the way, I have no idea what Tannehill is going to look like in year three with the Titans. Just no idea. I have no, not a clue. And I have no idea what the Titans are going to be next year. I'm not even going to pretend like I know what the Titans are going to be next year. Um, I feel like they're probably not the Chiefs. They're probably not the Ravens. They're probably not the Browns. They're probably not Buffalo. But I just have, I feel like they're going to be a four seed in the AFC South, and I don't know if they're better than the Colts. I have no idea what the deal is with the Titans, because to be honest, I don't know how good their defense is going to be, and I don't know what this offense is going to look like. Because despite the fact that you bring back Derrick Henry post 2000 yard season and, you know, there's not a ton of reason to not think Derrick Henry can't go for 2000 yards again, or at least like 1800, 1700, which is still going to do the same job of 2000, 2000 is more of just a semantic number. But I have no idea because this, this Titans offense, although you bring back the battery of Tannehill and Derrick Henry and A.J. Brown, everything else around it is so much different than it was last year. Not only because you subtract Jonu Smith and Corey Davis and replace him with Julio Jones and Josh Reynolds and Anthony Ferkser and the return of Adam Humphreys, but also the fact that Taylor Luan ended last season with a season-ending injury, and now he comes back as a starting left tackle, and that should help improve their running game and help improve the protection for Tannehill because Taylor Luan is one of the six or seven best left tackles in all of the NFL. And the fact that the defense might be a little worse than it was last year. Uh, the secondary certainly looks rather weak for the Titans, and a lot of it is dependent on what Kevin Byard looks like if he's still an elite safety. There's so many questions that I just have no idea about for the Titans. I have no clue what the Titans are going to end up being next year. But boy, is it going to be interesting to watch because bo- rarely do we get this one shift in an offseason where the offense feels retooled around the edges yet the core of the team is still together. And that core of the team was unbelievably fun. Think about that for the Titans now. They've got like three ridiculous superhumans on the same team. Derrick Henry, 6'3", 250 pounds. Julio Jones, 6'3", 230 pounds. A.J. Brown, six foot one, like 215 pounds. Like these are super freak athletes that the Titans have surrounded around Ryan Tannehill. And to be honest, it looks like it's going to be really fun and really high scoring and also a recreation of what the Falcons were doing for the past five years that will probably net them like a nine and eight or a 10 and seven record. So I have no idea what the Titans are going to look like. And they've got this super weapon of, of Derek Henry that just changes the math on all of this. But boy, are the Titans going to be so much fun to watch next year, even if I have no idea what it's going to end up looking like. So 
Julio Jones brings 1,400. If we're doing the simplest math possible, Julio Jones brings 14 to 1,500 yards into an offense that minus Corey Davis and minus Johnu Smith was looking to replicate about 1,700 yards of offense year over year. And we'll see if the Titans can end up replicating that offensive production. And most importantly, when it comes to A.J. Brown, Julio Jones, Adam Humphreys, and Ryan Tannehill, whether or not that team can stay healthy and reach their maximum potential, which again, whatever that maximum potential is, I'm not going to pretend like I know. Because ever since I was perfectly right about the Tennessee Titans in 2019, I've been pretty damn wrong about the Titans ever since. So I, as the mayor of Warriors South, would like to make an official proclamation here today on this beautiful Monday or Sunday night when I'm recording this. The Atlanta Hawks, whom since October of 2019 I have been preaching for as the next great innovation in the NBA, a model for success taken directly from the Golden State Warriors and general manager Travis Schlentak, who was Bob Myers' second-in-command in Golden State during the first two championship runs. Travis Schlentak, who came to Atlanta and said, we are going to replicate the successes of the Warriors. And that began with the drafting of Trey Young back in 2018 by giving up the draft pick that became Luka Doncic in order to make that happen. That Travis Schlentak and those Atlanta Hawks finally turned a corner under Nate McMillan and the return of Bogdan Bogdanovich because let me tell you right now, every team needs a Bogdanovich and boy, do the Milwaukee Bucks really regret not getting Bogdanovich. Like, I wasn't watching as much Bogdanovich in Sacramento, but I'd always been making the joke that every team needs a Bogdanovich on their team. And boy, dude, is Bogdanovich great. Just an amazing acquisition for the Atlanta Hawks. And he raps and he puts a silencer to the crowd in Philadelphia. Not, not the gun silencer, but just the fingers to the mouth silencing the Philadelphia crowd as the Atlanta Hawks just dominate the Philadelphia 76ers. My official proclamation here today after game one, I don't care if the Atlanta Hawks never win another game in the rest of this series, or if they pull a remarkable upset and take down an injured Joel Embiid and eliminate the Philadelphia 76ers and my first love of the process. Because even though I have a Sam Hinkie mentality, and even though I've listened to his podcasts and want to get into his audiobook and take a lot of Sam Hinkie ideology and apply it to my own life, I am the mayor of Warrior South. I have held this since October of 2019, and I could argue back to July of 2019 when we talked about Trey Young as the first child of the Steph Curry generation. 
I still have the archival footage that I ha- that I can play to talk about Trey Young back when we were going to the park, going to our secret hideouts in San Diego and recording podcasts because I didn't know what I was doing. And now here we are two years later still preaching the gospel of Trey Young and the Steph Curry generation. Trey Young being the first child of what Steph Curry created with his 2014, 15, and 16 runs where children were the ones who were so appealed to Steph Curry in his fun game. Now the Steph Curry generation is coming to life and Trey Young is that first child who is taking the NBA by storm and pulling up from the logo at halftime to put the Hawks up 25 against the Philadelphia 76ers. And once I saw 25, I was like, 28-3 started clicking in my mind. 28-3, 28-3. This would be amazing content for meme pages if the Atlanta Hawks blew this game against the Philadelphia 76ers. But I just kept checking the score back and forth. 17-point game, 18-point game, 20-point game. Maybe it'd be a 15-point game, but I kept checking in the score all the way for to like eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. And I went away for a while, and I came back with a minute left to go in the game, and it was a three-point game. <laughs> it was a three-point game when I came back, so you could understand my just complete and utter shock to see my boys, Warriors South, embattled in a duel against the Philadelphia 76ers for their lives and me looking up and saying, what the hell just happened to my beloved Warriors South? And yet, in the end, they would hold on and John Collins would hit his free throws and Trey Young would finish with 30-plus points and the Atlanta Hawks would win game one in Philadelphia Joel Embiid is battling a small meniscus tear, which anytime you hear that, all of a sudden, they just red flag, red flag all over the place. And they got to have Ben Simmons guarding Trey Young for most of the game, and they would just keep switching Danny Green, switching Danny Green, switching Danny Green. Trey Young would pull up over Danny Green. He would drive on Danny Green, and it was a genius strategy that the Atlanta Hawks took to heart, and Nate McMillan who, by the way, Nate McMillan's resume now is just coaches the five seed. That's just what Nate McMillan does. That's what Nate McMillan gets you. He's going to coach the five seed, whether it's him in Indiana, whether it's him coaching the Ray Allen Supersonics. Nate McMillan is going to get you the five seed. That's what he does. He coaches five seeds. And the Atlanta Hawks, who took down the New York Knicks with ease because, to be honest, Julius Randle got kind of exposed in playoff basketball and None of the New York Knicks had any sort of playoff experience other than Derrick Rose, and there was a good bit of exposure. But Trey Young didn't have any playoff experience, and Bogdanovich didn't have any playoff experience, but they were just that special compared to what Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett had. So the New York Knicks get exposed by the Atlanta Hawks, and they make it to the second round, and this child, this child Trey Young, this first child of the Steph Curry generation, ends up going for 30-plus points. And he's only 22 years old. And Trey Young is unreal. 
And so my official proclamation here today as the mayor of Warriors South, and I was going to have an edit, but to be honest, I just went and hung out for a bit and didn't end up making the Hawks edit, which we'll get to at some point, maybe by game two. Trey Young and the Atlanta Hawks have officially arrived. Even if they don't win another game in this series against the Philadelphia 76ers, the fact that they won a game in Philadelphia, that they won game one in Philadelphia, is enough for me to point to the Atlanta Hawks and say, this season was a resounding success for the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks have officially arrived, and not since the Phoenix Suns in the bubble last year have I been more confident in a team officially arriving at the pinnacle of where they are right now than I feel right now with these Atlanta Hawks and with Trey Young and with Joel Embiid. Ladies and gentlemen, as the mayor of Warriors South and the Atlanta Hawks soon-to-be dynasty in the NBA, the Hawks have officially arrived. And Warriors South is here to stay. And best of luck to them whenever they play again. Maybe they will not win another game in the series. I'd bet every single penny I had on the Philadelphia 76ers to win game two. Because to be honest, Joel Embiid, when healthy, and Ben Simmons just totally should outmatch Trey Young and Bogdanovich and Gallinari and Clint Capella. But for now, I can bask in the glory of saying that Warriors South has officially arrived, and Travis Schlentak's vision that we talked about two years ago and revisited in full during the pandemic and kept talking about all throughout this season as much as we could, Warriors South has officially arrived in crystal clear form. They have had a hell of a successful season far beyond their wildest imaginations they have separated themselves from the pack of teams that all had one or two top 50 players from the bulls from the pacers from the hornets from the raptors from the wizards the hawks separated themselves this season from that pack of mediocre teams in the in the eastern conference and they have arrived. So congratulations to the Atlanta Hawks and my boys down in Warriors South for beating an injured but still beating the Philadelphia 76ers in game one in what is by far the most shocking upset of the NBA playoffs. All right, let's finish up this podcast here today talking about Luka and Game 7 and the Clippers. Because Vegas nailed it. Vegas was leaning heavy into the Clippers. When it got to the second quarter, and I knew this fact, and the Clippers were up 8, I looked around and I said, Clippers got this. Clippers probably got this. And lo and behold, Philadelphia, I'm sorry, the Los Angeles Clippers who had been pushed to the brink, who, as I talked about yesterday, probably would have been eliminated had they not gotten that help from Luca's shoulder, neck, and back injuries in games three and four with the nerve issue. 
Clippers end up winning the series at home. Marcus Morris was awesome for the Clippers. He had like 25 points in the game. Marcus Morris was absolutely fantastic. Luke Kennard was finally cited again. Luke Kennard citing after they paid him $16 million. And after yesterday, I said him and Marcus Morris both had terrible contracts. Each of them contributed like, I want to say 30 points between the two of them to the victory for the Clippers. And they were like the unsung heroes of the game. Kawhi Leonard and Paul George both balled out. But for a long period of the game, Luka Doncic was outscoring. Luka Doncic was doing the work of two superstars for much of the Mavericks and Clippers game yesterday. With about five minutes left in the third quarter, Luka Doncic had 31 points, and Paul George and Kawhi Leonard had 28 between the two of them. The game was pretty close at that point. The Clippers had a slight lead, about you know three, five points. And a lot of that had to do with the production of Marcus Morris. The fact that four, five different Clippers were in double figures. I want to say five, six Clippers ended the game in double figures yesterday. Um, It's weird at the end because they ended up scoring 126 points. Uh, Luka finished with 46, which is just absolutely bonkers. But you had three over 20. You had Kawhi, 28, Marcus Morris, 23, and Pandemic P with 22, 10, and 6 in 43 minutes. You had 11 different Clippers. 11 Clippers finished in double figures. Batum had 11. Reggie Jackson, 13, 15. Terrence Mann, who's been like a, just an emerging sixth man in the playoffs this year. He ended up with 13. Luke Kennard ended up with 11. The Clippers ran through Dallas and in that battle for a generation where I talked about yesterday for a long time that it looks like the young kids are winning. Kawhi made one last stand for the older generation and Kawhi's a little bit of a tweener because he's technically in his prime right now, but Kawhi Leonard made one more stand for the old guys in the battle for a generation. And so now he will make a stand against the children of the Western conference, whether it be Donovan Mitchell or Devin Booker or Nikola Jokic Kawhi Leonard is going to try and run through all of them en route to the NBA Finals against, potentially, the other old guys, the team of old guys, trying to make one last stand like the Dallas Mavericks of 2011, which, by the way, is the last time the Dallas Mavericks won a playoff series. I was stunned when I heard that on the broadcast. Dallas Mavericks have gone 10 years without winning a playoff series. 10 years. The NBA Finals victory in 2011 was the last time the Dallas Mavericks won a playoff series which is absolutely baffling because I associate the Mavericks with success across the last decade. They won a championship in 2011 and they haven't won a playoff series since. It's like the Oklahoma City Thunder, associated with massive success, but also have not won a playoff series since Kevin Durant left in 2016. Fun teams, but they didn't win in the playoffs. And that's okay. Winning in the playoffs isn't everything. They're still really fun teams to watch. Look at this Dallas Mavericks team this year. Last year, in the bubble, when Luka Doncic was hitting game-winning buzzer beaters in the fourth quarter, of, or in game four to tie the series up 2-2. Like, they're just fun. The Dallas Mavericks got me so excited across the last two weeks and change. 
So even if they lose, it's ridiculously fun, and they're going to have more chances to make these runs. And to be honest, they probably would be moving on and having a good shot at the Western Conference Finals if Luka doesn't get hurt in games three and four and a little bit of game five. And so Dallas Mavericks haven't won a playoff series since 2011, which was shocking to me. But anyways, back to the point on the Los Angeles Clippers. The Clippers end up moving on and Kawhi Leonard is going to make the last stand for the old heads in the Western Conference as Damian Lillard and Steph Curry and LeBron James, players that we associate with a decade of success in the NBA. They start fading to the background and the young guys start to take center stage late in these playoff runs. And that's the same thing going on in the East with Embiid and Giannis and baby Trey Young going up against the team of all the old guys. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden. And when I say old guys, I don't mean they're old by NBA standards. I just mean all of them are exiting their primes. They're on the back ends of their prime. Harden's 32, Kevin Durant's 33, Kyrie Irving's 30. They're just guys on the back ends of their prime. And so the Clippers move on. They'll face Utah. Now let's talk about the game itself which we did a little bit. We talked about it from the Clippers standpoint, but let's talk about it from the Mavericks standpoint. Luka Doncic has a ridiculously high usage rate. And it's a model that is not super sustainable in the long run. At least when it comes to coming up against teams late in the playoffs. And really they got a matchup in the first round of this team where they have two, three star players who you can give the ball to and say, go get me a basket. Or you can go into a game and say, we need 30 points. Maybe they'll give you 30 points, but at least they're capable of going for 30 points. The Mavericks have one of those players right now. It's Luka Doncic. And to be honest, Luka had to go for 30 and 40 a lot in this series. Luka, they showed the stat, Luka went for 30 plus points in six games. He's the youngest player to ever go for 30 or more points in six games of a playoff series. And Luka Doncic, as I mentioned, ended the game with 46, and he had 31 pretty much by halftime. He had 29 at halftime. But Luka Doncic's high usage rate comes with a problem is that Luka Doncic is a pretty average three-point shooter. He shoots about 35%. From the free throw line, he was shooting about 41% prior to game six, where he ended up shooting five for five. And yesterday, he ended up shooting about a little over 50% from the free throw line. And so the team gets in trouble and the math changes when teams take away Luca with free throws or Luca isn't hitting the three pointers. Luca has a game like the fourth quarter of game five, the last game that the Clippers won or that the Mavericks won where Luca Doncic had a one for eight fourth quarter. The Mavericks went from up 15 to up one. They end up winning the game but their lead dissipates when Luka Doncic starts shooting one for eight. And we saw that in the fourth quarter of that game because the Dallas Mavericks as a team shot 27% from the three-point line in that game. Luka Doncic was propelling the team quite a bit from the three-point line, but even he at the end finished in the 40s from the three-point line. And so the Dallas Mavericks, who shot 30% from the three-point line with I like making this joke a little bit with Dorian Hardaway Finney Smith Jr. 
shooting three-pointers for the Dallas Mavericks. And Porzingis had a great game. Like, Porzingis at the five was a was a change they made late in the game, and I think they probably should have gone to that earlier. But Rick Carlisle's great strategy and wasn't bad. They needed the bigs inside, was to double the seven-footers with Boban and Kristaps Porzingis playing at the same time. And I think when they went to Kristaps at the five, it changed the math quite a bit because it cleared out the lane. It allowed Luka to drive or do step backs in ISO. It really opened up the floor for Luka to play total ISO ball and get his 46 points and try and keep the team afloat. But ultimately, Clippers shot about 48% from the three-point line and the Dallas Mavericks shot 27% from the three-point line. And ultimately, that's not what's going to... That that was the difference in the game right there, was the five to six extra three-pointers that Luke Kennard and Marcus Morris and Paul George made for the Los Angeles Clippers. And it's a, it's a live-by-the-three, die-by-the-three mentality a lot of the times. And the problem for the Mavericks, and what's going to continue to be the problem as Luka Doncic plays with these high usage rates, is what's going to end up happening when Luka Doncic doesn't hit those shots in a high volume like he was in the first half where he had 29 points and the back end of the game where he had 17 points, but a lot of it came in garbage time for the Dallas Mavericks to get them to 111. But it was a lot of layups where the Clippers conceded in order to not foul. So what happens when that math changes for the Dallas Mavericks? That's where you need some help and why Luca, why I've been saying for a long time, Giannis makes perfect sense going to the, the Dallas Mavericks. Sure, it doesn't help with the three-point game, but you can surround him with shooters. You can surround him with Seth Curry's. You can surround him with Dorian Hardaway, Finney Smith Jr. And that math changes the game for the Dallas Mavericks. But Luka needs some help, and I don't know the methodology to get it. I proposed a trade over on our Instagram, and y'all can uh, check that out if you're checking this out on Monday as well, with Kristaps Porzingis and a John Wall-Eric Gordon flip-flop. Um, they would move like Maxi Klebach or uh, Dwight Powell or someone like that over to the Rockets to match contracts. But they could bring on uh, John Wall's gigantic albatross of a contract for two years bring on eric gordon as a three-point shooter that they really need like a consistent three-point shooter who could potentially get his own basket start at the two instead of dorian finney smith hardaway jr all right i messed that up dorian hardaway finney smith jr that's one that i throw out there i think that they should definitely go look at the rockets and see if they would trade take porzingis for John Wall and Eric Gordon and throw in a Dwight Powell or a Moxie Klebach and some second round picks or something. But the Mavericks do have to look around at some alternative options to try and surround Luka with some help. I don't know exactly what the answers are to those. Maybe it's a free agent signing because obviously Josh Richardson is going to walk in free agency and they'll go sign somebody available, maybe a shooter like a Mike Scott or something. But Dallas definitely needs to shake things up in terms of the help around Luka Doncic. And ideally, that would involve moving Porzingis, who averaged about 12 points and six rebounds in the series, uh, and see if they could upgrade somewhere across that uh, line of like a second star like John Wall and maybe a complimentary piece like an Eric Gordon. It's one that I'd throw out there. But we'll see how it ends up going for the Mavericks, as they readjust in this offseason, there's a lot of promise there, just like there's a lot of promise for my boys over there in Warriors South and the 
22-year-old children, Luka Doncic and Trey Young, really showing something early on here in these first two weeks. It's it's really quite impressive. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We've got episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up on Sundays. Uh, make sure to follow, leave a five-star rating, download, and uh, leave a review. doesn't have to be a nice review. Just drop a review down there for us uh, while you're here. Um, that being said, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Warrior South! Let's go, Hawks. The mayor is out. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.